Isaiah 42, 12 through 16. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn, over, I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, even though I feel like I've been here for a minute, it still feels like I don't know a lot of you just because of, you know, the state of the world at the moment. Um, so I'm the pastor of kids and family, but if neither of those categories applies to you at your present moment in life, that does not disqualify you from uh, hanging out with me. I would love to get to know you, so please reach out. Let's get coffee, especially now that the weather is changing and hopefully we're vaccinated and all the things. So. Um, and as you probably are aware, and if you aren't aware, it is Mother's Day. Um, and I, it's a wonderful day. Of course, you know, there's, many of us are blessed with awesome moms who are worthy of all the love and esteem and honor that we're going to shower on them today, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but also, I know for many of us, this can be a really hard day and a really bittersweet day. Um, for some of us, we have, you know, a strange uh, relationships with our mothers, or we never knew our mothers, or a lot of us are struggling to become mothers. And so uh, if you are one of those people for whom today is particularly painful, I just want you to know that I've been thinking about you this week. Um, we were praying for you actually before the service, and I just want you to know that um, I hope for you Jesus comes close to you today, and I want you to know he, he sees you. Um, I've been thinking about Mother's Day a lot, knowing that I was going to preach on Mother's Day. Um, I am myself a mother of three kids, if you don't know that about me, one of whom just turned uh, 13, so I'm now a mother of a teenager, and I am still wrapping my brain around that. Uh, and I don't know if it was because I grew up in the evangelical church, which I did, and I grew up in the South, which I did, um, but I've wrestled a lot with my identity being defined sort of exclusively or primarily um, as a mother, as this role as a mother, in a way that I think I can safely say that my husband, 
hasn't really struggled with his identity, identity being sort of taken over with his fatherly uh, role. Um, I've really chafed at it, if I'm going to be honest with you. And it's not because I don't absolutely love being a mom. I, I absolutely do. It is an honor, and it is a gift, and it is a privilege. It is the hardest jo darn job I'm ever going to do. And it's a lot of fun, to be quite honest. But the rest of my personhood sort of being subsumed or taken over by that role has always kind of like been a source of tension for me. Like, you know, I want to be like, aren't there other parts of me that were true, like prior to becoming a mom that are still true now? Like, what happened to those? Um, and especially like when I first became a mom, like, sure, I can talk potty training tips, that's, that's fine. But like, what about me as a sister or as a friend or as a wife? And like, the parts of me that want to like geek out on theology or the Parts of me that want to go to, like, a rap concert. I don't know. Like, those parts are still true of me. And not, like, in an Amy Poehler Mean Girls, like, I'm, a, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. Like, not that, you know. Like, those parts of me that were true are still what make me me, right? And, and maybe if you're a mom, you can relate to this. But even if you're not a mom, I think we can all kind of relate being locked into stereotypes. Like, we don't like that. It's limiting. Like, to only be known in an exclusively sort of, like, one-dimensional way we just, we don't really like that. Um, and maybe you are the type of person that's like, I only feel comfortable revealing one aspect of my person to the outside world. And that's fair, and that's legitimate. But I think also, if we were honest, we would hate that of our most intimate relationships, right? Because if we're understood exclusively in a one-dimensional way, that's not really to be fully, deeply, truly known at all, really. Now, I don't presume to know how God feels about this. However, I think it is safe to say, as an image bearer, that he probably doesn't love it when we do the same to him. Um, so scripture uses many, many metaphors for God. And yet, strangely, Christians have tended to limit themselves to just a small handful of them. And this is probably familiar territory. We had a whole series about this. Um, and so we talked about some of these common metaphors, right? We're very familiar with Jesus is the good shepherd, right? or uh, rock, fortress, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Um, so we know that we're limited in our usage, though, of metaphors, because all we have to do is think about the church names that we know, right? So there's a ton of good shepherds. Every city has one. Uh, Christ the King is a really popular one. Uh, there, I, I grew up at, at one point in my life going to a rock, like the rock, and I think that's a church around here. I'm new, but I think I've heard that. Um, but funny how we've never heard of a Church of Jesus, the Mother Hen, right? Never heard of that one, but we're going to talk about that one later. Or Church of God, the Laboring Mother. Never heard of that one, not a popular one. Um, so when we drag out these same old metaphors for God over and over again, it's not that we offend God, I don't think. I think, it's because, I think the problem with that is, is that we're the ones to miss out, we aren't getting the fullest, most robust portrait of who God is. And now you might be thinking like, well, what does it really matter if we limit it, if we operate out of like a very small handful? Like, what does it matter? It's kind of like going to the Louvre, right? Like, there's so many beautiful paintings, we can't possibly have time to see them all. We're going to see the Mona Lisa, we'll catch the Vermeer next time. Well, I actually think that's misguided, because I think that expanding our metaphor list is actually essential because met metaphors are really powerful. They're more powerful than we think. We use them every day. They're part of our common uh, parlance. 
Uh, and they're really helpful, especially in describing like very abstract, highly conceptual, complex things like God, for instance. And they can also be extremely influential in determining whether we view something as positive or negative, whether we think of something as good or bad. So for instance, um, a team of psychologists studied this uh, uh, task force, and they looked at the words used in this task force. This was like done in 2015 by President Obama, and it was on law enforcement and sort of the perception of, of law enforcement. Um, and among their findings, they discovered that when a more um, uh, protective metaphor, such as guardian, was used to describe police officers, people were more positive, not just towards law enforcement, but to the criminal justice system in general versus when they used a more militaristic metaphor of warrior, they had a more negative view. So it's really interesting. The task force was like commended them on, on, on this choice because it literally changed people's perception. Um, and so the same goes for our metaphors for God. If our chief metaphor for God is a judge, we are going to primarily pray to a punitive, I didn't mean to alliterate so much, but <laughs> primarily pray to a punitive God. He's ready to mete out uh, rewards and punishments. And even if we privilege the metaphor father, which would make sense, right? Because that's a very prevalent one. We see it a lot. No matter how much we're trying to convey the benevolence that that term holds, if we overuse it, we are still going to suppress certain features of God and represent him in an inadequate and an inaccurate way. And as we noted in our last series, um, we talked about that specific metaphor. People with, you know, have father baggage um, who've had abusive fathers or neglectful fathers, like this could actually do spiritual damage to only rely on that father metaphor. Some, some theologians have even taken this a step further and said that the characteristics that we uh, most regularly project onto God happen to be the ones that we just already like a lot in our society, in our culture. So this is essentially, if you've heard of the book Jesus and John Wayne, it's kind of gotten a lot of attention if you like this sort of thing. Um, Christianity, uh, Christian nonfiction, I guess. Um, but she argues, this author, Kristen Dumay, argues in this book I mean, she's talking about evangelical Christians in general. And she argues that because evangelicals have kind of felt like they're losing their grip on culture, which they had um, in the past, that recently they've begun to gravitate towards icons that represent this sort of like white, rugged masculinity. So people like John Wayne or William Wallace, if you can remember all the way back to 1995, Mel Gibson, Braveheart, Freedom, that guy. Um, They've really, really liked those characters. And in turn, what happened is they've replaced this Jesus of the Gospels with this sort of like spiritual badass. Um, and so the, the only Jesus that they're really interested in is the table-flipping Jesus. So not the Jesus that washes dirty feet, not the Jesus that makes time for children, not the Jesus who endures the humiliation and the mockery of the cross, and so one of the evangelical authors that she even cites in her book puts it quite bluntly when he says, like, I don't want to be told to be like Jesus with a beard. Or he says, I don't want to be like Mr. Rogers with a beard, that Jesus, the nice Jesus. I would rather be told to be like William Wallace. And so as a result, these heroes would come to define for them not just like what Christian manhood should look like or Christian masculinity, but it actually is what they want Christianity to look like itself, like to the 
to the uh, greater world. So metaphors are really powerful stuff, and what she makes quite clear in this book is that what we already want to be true of ourselves is what we end up projecting on God. So there's something like close to 100 metaphors for God in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they range from animate to inanimate, from masculine to feminine. And the reason that we get such an overabundance of images is because, as we know, no one metaphor can fully encapsulate God, right? So to operate out of only one isn't just disappointing on an imaginative level. It's not just like, oh, that's just sort of drab. But what we're actually doing is we're projecting that this ought to be the primary way that we understand God. So the Bible gives us this sort of surplus of images in order to rule out that literalism, which is the temptation that our brain always wants to make, right? It's so much easier to just be like, this equals that. Like, that's the shortcut our brains are just wired to take, right? But the beautiful thing about metaphors is, is that they resist that. So when I hear uh, popular theologians saying things like Christianity has like a distinctly masculine feel, which has been the case, I think what hap what's happened is they've unfortunately succumbed to that literalism that results from using the same metaphors over and over again. It's just become this equals this, this equals that. They've also somehow managed to forget that the New Testament has almost exclusively talked about people coming to faith, the Holy Spirit birthing believers <laughs> into faith being a very feminine idea. Like if you've used the term born again to describe your you know, entry into the life of faith, you've used a very feminine metaphor. So here's the thing. Metaphors drive our understanding of a thing. And so when we operate out of an impoverished understanding of God, we miss out on who God is and what he's up to in the world. Because as we've seen, different metaphors invite different responses, different actions. And so what I wanted to think about today is what invitations are we missing out on if we operate from a very limited set of metaphors? And so because it's Mother's Day, I wanted to think specifically about some of these neglected or sort of overlooked metaphors um, that we get in the Bible that portray God in a very maternal and feminine way. And as we look at them, I want to keep in mind some questions. So what do these metaphors invite you to be as Christ followers? And what might we be missing out on if we keep putting those to the back of the pile and just keep drawing from the, the typical ones? So the first we're going to look at, look at is Isaiah 42. And I wanted to reread it really quick just because of the, the language is really important. And then we'll look at Luke. So this is Isaiah. The context is the prophet Isaiah speaking to the people in exile. Um, he's using... God is using him as, as his mouthpiece, as God does through prophets. And what he's doing here is he's telling the people to sing. And so he says, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes forth like a soldier, like a warrior. He stirs up his fury. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. I have been silent for a very long time, kept my peace, held myself in check. Like a woman in labor, now I shriek, I gasp, and also pant. I will wither mountains and valleys, and all their grass I will dry up, and I will turn rivers into islands, and ponds will I dry up. I will lead the blind on a way they did not know, on paths they did not know, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them to light, and rough ground to a level plain. These things I will do. I will not abandon them. 
And so this passage was written during the time of the Babylonian exile, a time when a good portion of the Judean people were taken from their homeland. They were taken away from their families, their homes, everything that was familiar to them, uprooted to live in a foreign land with foreign people, foreign rulers, foreign gods, foreign food, everything totally foreign to them. And not only that, Jerusalem, their temple, the focal point of their worship, had been destroyed before their eyes. And it looked very much like everything that God had promised of them all the way back in 2 Samuel to their beloved King David, when God said, I will establish your throne forever, very much looked like none of that was going to happen, right? Because, like, take a look around. <laughs> like, how could it be? <laughs> Doesn't look that way. And so Isaiah the prophet is speaking to a people who are no doubt very desperate, very hopeless, and no doubt cynical, right, about their future. And he's telling them, of all, th of all things, to sing. And he was probably able to anticipate their response. Like, we're still supposed to worship Yahweh? Like, every year that we spend in exile, it sure looks like Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, won this one. <laughs> Hate to tell you. Um, and so it seems like God is almost asking them to take uh, part in this sort of mass cognitive dissonance, right? And you may have noticed when we were reading this that there was this interesting shift from the third person to the first person. And so after hearing this third person kind of speech, this hymn, for a good majority of it, God then shockingly starts to talk in the first person. And he says, I have been silent for a long time. And he's offering what's tantamount here to a confession. He's like admitting, like, I get it. It looks like I've totally been ignoring your cries. It looks like I have no idea what's going on. And this, of course, has been the lament of the people from day one when they've been in exile. This is what the Psalms are, Psalm 44. Like, why do you sleep, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Just like we asked today when we're in a particularly difficult season, we're like, are you even listening? Are you even aware of what's going on? And so he's signaling now that a new era is born. And he's saying, I get it. You've thought I've been aloof from your pain and suffering, all your pain and your suffering. And then he says, it's over. And he signals the end of his silence by way of this visceral metaphor of a woman screaming and moaning in childbirth, which is powerful, right? What I love about this image is that it lassos that ethereal God, old man in the sky, which again is another metaphor we have, uh, who's just you know, doing his own thing, completely aloof to us, and he lassos him down right here in the midst of everything and positions him in this very embodied way. And it's uncomfortable, right, if we're honest. It's, it's groaning and it's messy, and like if you've ever been in a delivery room, you know it's gross. <laughs> I remember when I was preparing for my first um, childbirth, um, the first time, first time doing it, and I was uh, in the delivery room, and it was before things had kind of like gotten going and serious, and I was like trying to like maintain a level of decorum and just be very modest because I'm just kind of a modest person in general, especially in front of strangers. And my really wonderful nurse noticed me doing this, <laughs> and she was like very sweetly and gently just kind of laughed at me and was like, "Oh, girl." <laughs> Like, you have no idea. It's about to get real, real in here. <laughs> like, you don't need to bother doing that. We're going to get close. Um, and she knew that I was about to be at my most vulnerable moment. And so there's a ton of ways that Isaiah could have chosen to describe this. And in fact, a verse prior, you may have noticed that warrior metaphor. 
And it's God as a warrior going uh, to battle on behalf of his people. And while that works on one level, it doesn't quite capture it, right? And this is why, again, this abundance of metaphors is so helpful. So in the God as warrior metaphor, the warrior does three things. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty. And all of which sort of convey this sort of rousing, aggressive, like triumphant image, the scene. But then in the following metaphor, as God as a laboring woman, Isaiah uses another set of three verbs. He says that describe a very different set of actions. So God shrieks, he gasps, and he pants. And unlike the three things that the warrior does, all of these things involve like pain and discomfort, but also breath, right? And while they certainly communicate the pain and agony of childbirth, that breath also signifies active control. And if you, it's the main thing you can do in childbirth, I guess without drugs, uh, but to participate in that birthing process without uh, succumbing to the pain. So this is why you practice breath so much in uh, birthing classes. You're told to take a deep, cleansing, relaxing breath at the beginning and end of every contraction because it helps to sharpen your focus but it also brings oxygen to your muscles and to the baby. And so while it doesn't take the pain away completely, and I can personally attest to this, it does not, but it does give you a measure of control. And so I love what the author Lauren Winner says about this particular scene in Isaiah. She says, Isaiah gives this groaning, gives us this groaning woman as a picture of the sovereign God, the God is who is in control of redemption. God chooses to participate in the work of new creation with bellowing and panting. God chooses a participation that does not fight the pain, but that works from inside the pain. I mean, what other imagery gets at that better than childbirth? Because the metaphor of a warrior, like, rising up to kick butt is really, you know, it's comforting on one level, right? Like, as a mother, if my children are at risk of violence, like, yes, I do want, you know, this, like, powerful figure to come to our rescue. But what do I need to hear from God when I feel like he's been far away from me for a while? Where I feel like I've been sitting alone in silence, much like the people in Babylon were feeling, right? Like, what do I need to be reminded of in that moment? Like, not just that he's in control. He is in control, and, and that is important. But it may be kind of hard for me to buy because it's been so long. But what I need to hear is he's in control, but he's also in it with me. He's grunting, and he's moaning, and it sounds like he's going to die. And when I hear that, then I can believe that following verse, the last one we read, these things I will do. I will not abandon them. And this also happens to be the message of the cross. We have a God who chooses the path of pain to bring about our redemption. We have a wounded God whose lordship isn't shown through worldly power or domination, but in his vulnerability. And he's taken that into the presence of God so that now we can enter pain and grief and suffering and to actually, to do so is to actually experience communion with God. The God who was wounded for us and whose power is made perfect in his weakness. And so if the image of the cross has become something of a dead metaphor to you, if we've sanitized it, if it's become overly familiar and it needs to be resuscitated or reinvigorated, 
if it's lost its imaginative force, maybe think about Isaiah 42. Maybe picture God in the delivery room. Um, But if that's too graphic for you, we always have the New Testament. We can look at Luke. So just to refresh our memory, in Luke it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather you together your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the day comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So at the last passage we looked at, looked at God. It was presented, God is this laboring woman, laboring mother. What is the metaphor presented to us here in Luke? It's also found in Matthew's gospel. But what does it offer us? Jesus as a mother hen whose chicks don't want her. It's like, it's a little silly, right? It's, it's a little odd. So what's happening here is the Pharisees are warning Jesus um, about Herod. The same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist has been curious about Jesus, um, feels threatened by Jesus, and is going to kill him, is what they say. And so Jesus says, you tell that fox, I don't care about his timetable. I have things that I plan on accomplishing before I head to my death, and not even Herod, the state, I'm not stopping for anyone. No one's going to get in the way of that. And so he takes up this metaphor beginning with Herod as the fox. And foxes, of course, represent back then what they represent today. They're clever, like sneaky predators whose favorite prey are chicks. Or I'm going to guess they're chicks. I'm not a zoologist, but they're probably in their top five, you know, I think it's safe to say. And so why does Jesus lament here? So Jesus laments here because he knows the chicks of Jerusalem have and will collude with the fox who has nothing but nefarious intentions for them. And they have been doing this, and they've had a pattern of doing this. So Israel was created, as you may remember, uh, to be a light to the nations. All the way back in Genesis, the promise made to Abraham, I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless the nations of the world through your family. That's your calling. That's your vocation. And yet, it has failed to do that over and over and over again. It's copied the world instead. It's gone after other gods. They've engaged in destructive and self-destructive behavior. And every time, God sent a prophet to say, hey, you got to get back on track. This is not your calling. And every time, they've rejected the prophets. And so here we get this interesting juxtaposition of Jesus, like, thumbing his nose at the state, at the empire, at Herod while simultaneously admitting that he's grieving over the rejection by his people. They don't want to be rescued. And so it's this interesting mix of both strength and vulnerability, of power and of grief. So Jesus knows that he is going to take over, take on Israel's vocation. He is going to enter the darkness and the pain. He is going to take on the guilt of Israel and the entire world. And he's going to offer his body as a refuge even to those who want to kill him. But for now, he laments because his people will reject him first as they've rejected every prophet before him. 
And there's just nothing more vulnerable than when we can't save the ones that we ache to save, right? And I think that mothers understand this probably more keenly than anyone else, right? So, I mean, just setting your children loose in the world, first day of kindergarten, first day of daycare is, like, vulnerable enough, right? But then on another level, there's this sort of, like, maternal instinct to sort of rescue and comfort, even in the face of utter rejection by your children, that is just what makes maternal love, I think, so utterly beautiful, but also really heartbreaking. Um, I'm sure all of us in this room could tell individual stories of mothers that we know whose like, unswerving love for their children in the face of rejection by their children just boggles the mind. Like children who have rejected their mothers you know, due to addiction or self-destructive behavior, everyone else in their world has just walked away from them. They're a hopeless case siblings, friends, but there's a mother just standing there, just taking a steady stream of pain and rejection. And so I think this is why Jesus chooses to be seen as a mother hen in this story. Rather than say a number of like other apex predators that we find in the Old Testament, so in Hosea, there's a mother bear and eagles are all over the place, right? He could have chosen those, but instead he chooses to be seen as a hen because while hens can be fiercely protective of their young, when facing off with a fox, they're not an equal match, right? They're just as susceptible to danger as the chicks. The threat is very much real. And so I think what Jesus is trying to communicate here is not the ferocity of the protection that he offers, but the deep desire to protect at great risk to himself. And so rather than fleeing the danger that the Pharisees are warning him of, he opens his wings like a mother hen. He's going to run straight towards the cross. Again, God chooses the path of pain to bring about our redemption. He doesn't rescue us from afar. He's in it. And he doesn't promise us either a life free from pain. But he does promise to enter that pain with us. And he seals that promise with his very body, his very life. And so if these vulnerable portraits of God are offered to us in Scripture, what invitations do these metaphors specifically offer us as Christ followers? How might we embrace God's vulnerability in his rescue of us as our strength? Like, what would that look like? Perhaps rather than trying to strive for power or bury our pain, what if we stopped fighting our own vulnerability? What if we recognize that it's in those moments of our vulnerability that Jesus really wants to meet us? Where we actually are participating the most in God's nature and in his work. So one of my friends back in Atlanta posted this pic of, um, from her own childbirth. She had a home birth, if you can see it. So this is a picture when she was in labor and the photographer took a picture of her hands sort of unclenched on the bed as she's definitely in active labor. And she reflects on that day and has a distinct remembrance that when she clenched her fist, which is what you're kind of like, you kind of have this urge to do, when you clench your fist against the pain, it actually made the labor much longer and much more painful. And so it got me thinking, I was thinking about this image, like what if we made it a regular prayer of ours to sort of unclench our metaphorical fists? What if we prayed like, God, like your son, show me how to be vulnerable as Jesus made himself vulnerable. 
Like, how, how could we let go of our control, our power, our egos? Because not only will this open us up to communion with the Lord, but it will soften us to the people around us. Our vulnerability can actually serve as a pathway to serve others. So I have this quote up here um, from Henry Nouwen, who I love so much and who understands pain, who, under, who wrote about pain quite a bit. So he says, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus is God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. So Missio, may today, as we reflect on Mother's Day and we think about mothers and what the best mothers embody so beautifully, this way of vulnerability, hope, and eternal welcome, may those things lead us in the way of Jesus. And now as we come to the table and as you take those elements that hopefully you received when you came in, we get to live out what we were just reflecting on. So in many church traditions, and the church tradition I come from, it's known as, uh, communion is known as the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek meaning Thanksgiving. And the person who administers the Eucharist, the communion, is called the celebrant. And that's because this is a meal, like many meals, it's a celebration, it's a celebratory meal. Um, but unlike other meals, it's also a memorial. It's a memorial of our redemption. And it reminds us of how, like the bread, Jesus' body was broken. And like the wine, Jesus' blood was poured out. But it also reminds us that as we partake in this meal, we are also sharing in Christ's brokenness. But if we suffer with him, then we, as Paul says, we will be glorified with him. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our wounded healer. God, we know that you're in control, but it's so hard to trust sometimes. Thank you for loving us even when we fail to trust you. Thank you for loving us even when we reject you. Thank you for meeting us in our pain and show us how we can be wounded healers just like your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen.